Jesus prayed for you. Look at John chapter 17. This is known as the high priestly prayer. And look at what Jesus prays in verse 20. He prays for those who will believe. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Fox Den. Several weeks ago, I began a series reviewing the storyline of the Bible. And I did this so that we would have a clear picture of the Bible story. And that should help us better understand the Bible when we read it. For example, when we read the book of Zephaniah, we see why God spoke so harshly to the people. It's because of the terrible sins they committed. But in that book, we also see the amazing grace of God. And this makes sense in light of the promise found in Genesis 3.15 and the covenants that God made with Abraham and David. Furthermore, knowing the Bible story should help us see how God moved in history to bring our Savior to rescue us. In the last four episodes, I covered the Old Testament. And in this episode, I'll cover the Bible story according to the New Testament. To begin, however, let me quickly overview the Old Testament. This will give us the context of the New Testament. So we see in the beginning that God created all things and he declared his creation as very good. However, the serpent, who was Satan, persuaded Eve to eat the forbidden fruit she gave to Adam, and he ate. And that is known as the fall of mankind. Adam sinned against God. God gave him a command not to eat that fruit, and he did. So this is known as the fall of mankind, and all of us are related to Adam, so all of us are guilty in him. And this is why when you watch the news, you see the terrible things going on all around the world. Every person, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is sinful and evil to the core. That means you, and that means me. And it's because we come from Adam. However, God initiated a plan to defeat Satan and redeem sinners. So as God's redemptive plan unfolds, he makes covenants with men like Abraham and David concerning the coming Christ. The Old Testament covers the history of the people of Israel from creation to the call of Abraham, all the way to the divided kingdoms and the Jews returning to the land. It is the record spanning thousands of years in which God is bringing his Savior to rescue his people. And the first thing to note here is that the Savior had not yet come by the end of the Old Testament. It's also important to know that the time difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is about 400 years. So one thing we see here is that God is not in a hurry. But when we come to the New Testament, we see the promised Savior. He is Satan's greatest threat, and he arrives on the scene. It's important to say at this point that the four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, cover the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are parallel books telling the same story from different angles, and many of them cover the same events, but they're not exactly the same. So from the beginning of the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ, and that is because all four books tell us about him. So going back into history, the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he was born of her. So who is Jesus? The Gospel of John is the best place to begin. Look at what he says in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. First, he begins the same way as Genesis began. 
Only God was in the beginning. Second, the Word existed in the beginning. Third, we see in that verse that the Word was God. And finally, we see that the Word was with God. So here we see the Word is God and is also a distinct person. And this is one of the places where we go to support our belief in the Trinity. And the Trinity is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there are not three gods. There's one God. But this one God exists in three persons. However, at this point, we need to ask, who is the Word? Well, certainly, Jesus is the Word. John's Gospel is about Jesus. Look at what he says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He's writing so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing, you would have eternal life. His whole book is about Jesus. So John is saying that Jesus is the Word. Now look at what he says in John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh. In other words, the Word became a man. In other words, God became a man. And that Word is Jesus Christ. Notice where John begins his gospel. He begins in eternity, and he is putting Jesus there in eternity. He is saying that Jesus is God, and he existed in the beginning. So John is arguing here for the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus. And Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son. He's the Son of God, which becomes more clear as we read the New Testament. Again, the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he was born of her. So Joseph was his legal father, but God is his true father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus, who was involved in the creation of all things, came from eternity to rescue sinners. But we see clearly in John 1 that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is God who became man, but he never stopped being God. Now, concerning his childhood, we don't have much information. However, Luke recorded an incident when Jesus was 12, and this event indicates that even as a boy, Jesus knew who he was. So his family left Jerusalem, and sometime later, Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus wasn't with them. They thought he was with relatives, but they couldn't find him. So they returned to Jerusalem, And they found him after three days, and they found him in the temple. And he said to them, Didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? He says that in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. So when he says his father's house, does he mean Joseph? No, he meant the house of God, his father. He was at the temple. He was calling God his father. Remember the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. So even when he was 12... We see evidence of his divinity, and he knew who he was. So other than that, we don't hear much about the young Jesus. So moving on into his adulthood, the four Gospels tell us a lot about Jesus' ministry. He was about 30 years old when his ministry began, and it wasn't a big production. He didn't fly in a fancy plane. He didn't wear expensive clothes. He didn't have a large congregation or a big building. In fact, there was nothing about him that drew people's attention. That was actually prophesied in the book of Isaiah. We see that in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. And other than the fact that he was fully God, he looked like any other human being. And toward the beginning of his ministry, Jesus often told people not to say anything about the miracles they witnessed. 
In Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, he told his disciples not to let anyone know he was the Christ. His ministry was not a big production. Sure, people heard about him and people flocked to him, but it wasn't because he was advertising. It's because his ministry was miraculous. In his first miracle in John chapter 2, he turned water into wine. We're not talking about he just changed the color. He changed the composition of water. So again, it's not that he turned clear water into red water. It was clear water that turned into alcohol with color. He also calmed storms. We see one instance in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And how did he calm the storm? With his voice. Does that sound familiar? Genesis chapter 1, where God said, let there be and there was. And Jesus also healed the sick. In Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56, we see a couple instances. There's one woman who had a chronic bleeding disorder, and she simply reached out and touched his garment, and she was healed. And then there was a girl that he brought back to life. And how did he do that? With his voice. He told her to arise. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And again, how did Jesus do that? How did he raise Lazarus from the dead? With his voice. He called Lazarus out from the grave. Now, let me take a slight detour here and remind you that the same thing is going to happen to you. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, we see that Jesus is going to call us from our tombs and we're going to rise from the dead. Now, in light of the power of Jesus' voice, the main part of his ministry was preaching. He didn't do miracles to wow the people. He didn't use miracles as a marketing gimmick. He performed miracles to establish his authority. But he also did it to provide us clues on what is to come. For example, raising Lazarus from the dead showed us that we too are going to rise from the dead. Jesus was giving us a glimpse of our resurrection. Do you see how it follows John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, where he called Lazarus from the grave? He's demonstrating what he's going to do with us. By the power of his voice, he's going to call us back to life. And we're going to rise from the dead in bodies that can never sin, suffer, or die. And we will live in eternal glory with God. That's where we're going. Now, the religious leaders didn't like what Jesus was doing. After all, people began to flock to him, and he threatened their power and authority. So the Jewish religious leaders conspired to kill him, and Jesus was tried and crucified. Now, he was found not guilty, but they crucified him nonetheless. Now, before you think I'm blaming the Jews for killing Jesus, let me just say the human race is responsible for Jesus' death. Jews and Gentiles conspired to kill Jesus. And just so you know, it's not them, it's us. We would have been with them. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we would have called for his death as well. But this is the reason why Jesus came. When you look through the account, Jesus never defended himself. He was innocent. Not only did he never commit a crime, he never sinned. In his entire life, Jesus never sinned. And yet, he goes to the cross and never defends himself. And the reason why is because that's why he came. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sins on himself, and he died the death that we deserve. 
Again, Jesus never sinned. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Yet he died in our place. He died the death that we deserve. When you get a chance, listen to episode 32, where I talk about how Jesus took our place. But here's the good news. The death of Jesus wasn't the end of his story. He rose from the dead, never to die again. The death and resurrection of Christ is the death blow to Satan. Remember the promise God made back in Genesis 3.15? This is it. This is crushing his head. Promise fulfilled. But the end is yet to come. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And this leads us into the book of Acts. And the framework for the whole book is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And there it shows the spread of the church from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Now, at first, the disciples are fearful. And then we have Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. And after this, Peter goes out and he preaches in Jerusalem, and about 3,000 people come to faith. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. However, the church received much opposition. There was a man by the name of Saul who persecuted the church, and he would drag men and women off into prison because they were Christians. His mission was to destroy the church. Saul was a good Pharisee, and Christianity threatened Judaism. Well, one day Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, and a great light knocked him to the ground. And a voice asked Saul why he persecuted him. And Saul asked who the voice was, and the voice said, Jesus. Well, some time later, Saul's name was changed to Paul, and he became an apostle of Christ, and he wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. And you can read about Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Well, the church began to spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in Acts, we see it spread throughout Asia Minor in a very short time. In the book of Acts, we see Acts chapter 1 verse 8 being fulfilled. And you see that fulfillment even today. There are churches all over the world. Coming back to the book of Acts, we see Paul's three missionary journeys. Now, the books following Acts do not continue the timeline. Romans to Jude are letters written to churches and individuals. Most of them were written by Paul. And these letters inform churches of Christian doctrine. And by doctrine, I mean what the Bible teaches about God, man, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, sin, salvation, and so on. And these letters also inform churches how to live as believers in Christ. Then we have the last book, Revelation. And this tells us what's going to happen in the future. And the bottom line is, God wins. Jesus is already victorious. His victory was at the cross and resurrection. But time is still going, and the end has yet to come. So the book of Revelation tells us what is to come. And really, that's the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15. With this in mind, it's important to know that the Bible story didn't end with the book of Acts. Revelation reminds us that the Bible story continues, and we're part of that story. It's not our story. It's God's story. But we're involved because the story continues and because of the work that God has done in us and for us. We are part of the New Testament story. Again, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as the church is spreading throughout the world. In fact, you can find yourself in the Bible. First, we have Matthew 16, 18, and there Jesus says that he will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. 
Now, when I first read that verse, I read it as if the devil and his demons were attacking Jesus, but they couldn't defeat him. But that's incorrect. You see, Jesus isn't on defense. He's on offense. He's attacking the devil and the demons, and they will not be able to withstand the barrage. The gates of hell, not heaven, shall not prevail. The gates of hell will not be able to withstand the attack from Jesus. So Jesus came to rescue those whom the Father gave him. We see that in John chapter 6, verse 37. And if you're a believer in Christ, you're one of those whom God gave to Jesus to save. There you are in the Bible. As Jesus builds his church and he brings his people into the church, there you are. Jesus is still doing that work today, and there you are. Second, your salvation experience is in the Bible. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It describes salvation. In Ephesians, Paul wrote to Christians in Ephesus, and he's explaining to them how they're saved. However, Paul is writing to you as well. The Bible is authoritative to our lives. It gets to tell us what to believe and how to behave. And I talk about that more in episode 29. And Ephesians describes your salvation experience as well. If you're a believer in Christ, you were dead, but God made you alive. He raised you with Christ. He seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. The basis of your salvation is his grace through faith in Christ, not your obedience. Again, there you are in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I do talk about this in more detail in episode 5. And then third, Jesus prayed for you. Look at John chapter 17. This is known as the high priestly prayer. And look at what Jesus prays in verse 20. He prays for those who will believe. Do you see it? Jesus prayed for you. You have a record of Jesus praying for you there in chapter 17 of John's gospel. And then fourth, look at what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 16. He has sheep from another fold, and they will listen to his voice. Jesus uses future tense here. So who will listen to his voice? You. So you can see that we are part of the New Testament story. Now, coming back to the book of Revelation, it's the concluding book, and it reveals the victory of Christ in the future. Now, Revelation uses lots of figurative language because John sees visions. For example, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, John says God gave him a revelation of things that must take place. These are future events. These aren't things that happened in the past. They're things that must take place. So John sees visions of future events. Therefore, these are things that will happen, not things that have happened. John even admits to these visions in Revelation chapter 9, verse 17. There, he's describing how he saw the horse in his vision. And then finally, notice how he describes things. In Revelation 13, he describes a beast with ten horns and seven heads. Was that an actual beast? Well, no. It's a vision of the beast that he saw, and it represents something. Now, keep in mind, it's this figurative language in Revelation that makes it so hard to understand. But also keep in mind, John wrote the book of Revelation to encourage Christians because it shows that God wins. Revelation is not a prediction. God made a promise to win in Genesis 3.15, and he can't lie. And with Genesis 3.15 in mind, you are Eve's offspring in Christ. Not only did Jesus defeat Satan, he secured your eternal salvation. And that means a day is coming when you will rise from the dead 
You will enter eternal glory with God in body and soul, and you will never sin, suffer, or die. So the pending victory of Christ is guaranteed. Jesus is victorious, and he will be victorious. The war is over, but the story continues. And the main message of Revelation is God wins. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.